Please. Please, please. Did you guys practice that? What a nice, warm welcome. You guys must be nice people. That's why we love coming to Trinity. Cheryl and I are here again. Uh, We haven't been in uh, a service with you, one of your regular services on a weekend uh, before, but we've been a part of some other things and have enjoyed getting to know so many of you. Um, We've enjoyed that very much. Cheryl and I have been married 3,700 years, and we... (laughs) We have had a blast. We're in a good season now. We're grandparents. How many grandparents are in the house? I have, uh, I've had, I had a conversation with our youngest daughter uh, not long ago. She lives in San Diego. She's the children's minister of First Baptist San Diego. And she said, you know, Dad, us kids don't remember you loving us as much as you love our children. I said, we didn't. Sure, what your point is, sweetheart. We've also been, as you know, Todd is very gracious in what he said earlier, but um, we've been at High Desert Church for um, 34 years, give or take a decade, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful run. You know, we went up there when uh, it was a rather small church, and we thought we might be in and out of there pretty quickly because we really don't like the desert. And the Lord said to me, Tom, have you heard of Moses? And we said, you're going to die in the desert like Moses did. So, If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4. We've had a blast uh, the last couple of days talking to many of you about a principle we call the Oikos principle. It's become uh, one of the you know, standards that we bear now as we teach uh, the Word of God and train pastors and church leaders all over the place, Um, the Oikos principle is a big part of what uh, we train in in regard to church leadership. And so we're going to elevate that principle again today, and I'd I'd like to show you one of my favorite sequences in the New Testament, one of my favorite seasons of Christ's ministry that has become become so uh, important. Very exciting uh, sequence. Mark chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. We're not going to look at all of those <laughs> chapters in much detail. You're probably thinking, we're going to be here a while. Um, if he's going to look at that much of a grand scope of the Bible, we'll only look at particular sections of each of those chapters. So when we get to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's early in Jesus' ministry, and he's been teaching in his home region. Galilee is where he and many of the fellows, many of the disciples were from. And so a lot of family, a lot of friends, a lot of home cooking going on whenever Jesus and the guys would make their way to that northern part of Israel. They'd try to escape there, retreat there, get away from the chaos of the spiritual warfare in Jerusalem and surrounding Judea. And so it was, it was a great, always a great time to go home. And things are going very well on this particular day. It's a beautiful day, I'm sure. I've been to, uh, well, I'm not sure, I would imagine. I've been, I've been to Galilee, been to this particular location where so much of Jesus' teaching occurred. And so in my mind's eye, I can just visualize what a lovely day by the lake 
was listening to Jesus teach the, the profound truth that only he could communicate with such joy and, and in such a casual way. And on this day, he was rolling through some of the parables that we've come to appreciate. You've heard the parable of the sower and the seed. Raise your hand. Okay, well, he, he taught that today. Parable of the mustard seed and how God can use just a little bit of faith to do amazing things. You remember that story? Okay, so this was the day that he recorded his greatest hits, evidently. And it's just a, a wonderful experience. And then he tosses a nuke in their laps. It's out of the blue. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, That day when evening came, the end of such a nice day, he said to his disciples, I've got a great idea. Let's go over to the other side. That's the nuke, by the way. The other side. Because the other side was a term that was very familiar to them. He wasn't just talking about getting in a boat and sailing to the other side of a lake. This is not just the other side of a body of water. He's talking about taking a trip into a region known as the Decapolis. Decapolis, Greek word, means ten cities. And it wasn't a great place for Jews to visit. Wasn't friendly territory, especially for a Jewish rabbi and his followers. Those ten cities were filled with, dare I say, sinful people, pagan people. This wasn't just the other side of the lake or the other side of what we might use uh, the term in our vernacular, the other side of the tracks, if you will. This was absolutely the wrong side of life. In fact, you look back in Joshua chapter 3, you, you see the, the foundation for why it became such a difficult region. Joshua 3 verse 10, you know, God is, is going to give Israel the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, but before they moved in, there were a number of people who already lived there that had to be moved out. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. There's just a whole lot of ites that were living in the promised land, and they had to go somewhere, and you know where they settled? In the Decapolis. That's where those seven nations of Canaan settled down when God moved them out of the promised land. That's what God said he would do. He said he would prove his love for Israel by vacating the land on their behalf. So, this is where the sinners live, bro. Places filled with all kinds of weird things. Pagan temples still excavating those ruins today. Archaeologists still discovering new levels of sinful expression. Worship services in those temples combined vile, vile sexuality, extreme violence. You would walk into one of those gatherings and it would take you like a half a second to figure out we don't belong here. 
That's why the guys never went to the other side of the lake. They didn't belong there. It was also a center for Roman power. In fact, if I were to ask you, many of you know the answer to this question, if I were to ask you what was the most unclean animal in Israel, you'd start to snort the answer. It's a pig. But over on the other side, the pig was actually a symbol of power. There was a legion of Roman soldiers stationed there. They had a logo for their legion. It was the head of a pig, the head of a boar. And so one day, Jesus, just having the time of his life with the guys, and then he just casually says, I've got, I've got, I just got a feeling we should go to the other side. It's almost like he forgot who lived there. So we pick up the action in chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus and the disciples go land in the Decapolis. Now remember, he's drawing big crowds on his home court, right? Over on the right side of the lake, large enthusiastic crowds are coming out to hear him. The boat pulls up on the shoreline on the other side, and the welcoming committee comes out, and it's one dude. And he is a whack job, man. This guy is like, he's out of his mind, possessed by a cluster of demons. It's the entire welcoming committee. But nobody would be shocked at that. I could just see one disciple looking at the other disciple as the boat approaches, and this cat comes crawling out of the cemetery, cutting himself, screaming at the top of his lungs, profanities, and one disciple says to the other, well, there you go. (laughs) That is exactly why we don't come over here. Welcome, welcome to the Decapolis. Welcome to the other side. Welcome to the Twilight Zone. Okay, anyway, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and Jesus got out of the boat, and here's this guy. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. You might notice the word anymore, because they tried. For a long time they tried, just gave up. He's uncontrollable. Not even with a chain could they bind him. He'd often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore chains apart, broke the irons on his feet. You mean there was no one in that community strong enough to bind this guy? Nope. Night and day. Night and day. He'd come out from among the tombs in the hills, and he'd cry out. He'd cut himself with stones. You imagine putting your kids to bed? Just, you know, a little prayer and story, sing a little... Twinkle, twinkle, little star. And in the distance, you hear this guy howling at the moon. I mean, he's, he's like the town demonized dude. And then he saw Jesus from a distance. Now, before we read any further in the text, I just want to ask a, a question, another trivia question. How many times in the Old Testament, which, by the way, is a lot longer than the New Testament, how many times in the Old Testament do we run into a case of demon possession? And the answer is two, maybe three times in the whole Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up, and these bad boys start coming out of the woodwork. Because in terms of the spiritual war, this was what <laughs> war, um, 
generals would call a significant escalation of operations. And the presence of God on site made a big difference. And this guy saw Jesus from a distance, and he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. And I'm just trying to put myself in the sandals of one of the disciples still sitting in the boat watching all this unfold. This guy comes out of the tombs, falls in front of Jesus on his knees, shouts at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, in God's name, don't torture me. Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then he asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied. For we are many. Legion. Does that ring a bell? It's a loaded word, just like so many other terms and images in this particular story. Bless you. There there were a, a legion of Roman soldiers who were stationed there. That name for that cluster of demons, that name was strategically selected to intimidate people, to scare you. But who's scared of who here? These demons that possess this man are terrified at the presence of Jesus. And they beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, without falling into a theology of demons or angels, I I don't want to get too much of that to distract you from the story. But it might be interesting for you to remember that when angels were created by God, they were created for a very specific application of service. It is very unangelic for an angel to leave their appointment and do anything else. They are very focused creatures. You see that on both sides of the aisle. You see that with holy angels. They are assigned to a particular nation, a particular region, a particular element of service. I mean, you even read when Isaiah says, I'm caught up into the presence of God, and we got these angels just kind of hanging around, singing the same song over and over. And you think, well, that would get old. Not for them. And even a fallen angel is still an angel, which means these demons would want to stay. It's their hardwiring. And so they beg Jesus, whatever you do, don't make us leave. And so, just let us go into the pigs. At least they're here. And so he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, went into the pigs. And the herd, that herd, 2,000. See, there's so much in the story that we just don't stop to kind of soak in. 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pig. That's a lot of bacon, man. Rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they died. And it's the end of the story for some, not for me, but then again, I'm oik boy. You know, when I think of a pig, I, I already let the pig out of the bag. I'm, I think of bacon. I can smell it even while I look at your smiling faces today. It's all good, right? Wafting, you know, extra crispy. That's my style. Pigs. Remember Babe the Pig? Remember that cute little pig? Star of the silver screen. See, we smile when we think of pigs. I already, you already exposed your age because I asked how many of 
your grandparents. So I know some of you, many of you are going to remember the name Arnold Ziffel. <laughs> Admit it. There you go. Green Acres is the place to be, right? But when we see this happening, we might actually think, is there a way we can, you know, score some bacon out of this, out of this episode? Uh, but you know what the Jew watching this would see? You know what the disciples would have perceived? This was a showdown. This was an absolute and dramatic victory for the forces of light over the forces of darkness. The, the disciples would have been extremely impressed by this. But the people who live there, not so much. Those tending the pigs, verse 14, they ran off and reported what happened in the town and countryside. And the people had, when they heard, they had to go out and see firsthand for themselves what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. They'd seen him before. They'd been hearing him every night for the last however many years. But something's different about him now. He's actually, watch this, he's sitting there. Now that's something you don't see every day. And he's dressed. He's in his right mind. And they were, what? They were afraid. Oh, sure, let him be possessed by a legion of demons, crawl around the cemetery, screaming at the top of his lungs, mutilating himself. That's fine. But this version of the man scared them. And so they said, they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You know, they don't respond by saying, wait a minute, who, who did this to this guy? Jesus, you were able to do this. Are you serious? You have that kind of power and authority? Well, it just so happens we got a lot more whack jobs in our community, and if you would just come to our town, maybe you could clean the place up. I got a sick kid. I would love for him to be healed. I have, <laughs> I have some, some ill children with terminal diseases with would you be willing to come and help them? Do for them what you did for him. None of that. They took one look at that guy and said, Jesus, just go. So Jesus, always a gracious guest, he starts climbing in the boat, ready to leave. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus, please take me with you, there's room in the boat. I got nothing here. You know I got nothing here. I mean, these people, they don't want to have anything to do with you. And when you think about it, Jesus, we could make a pretty good team. We could sell out every tabernacle. We might even be able to rent the temple. And you just teach to these great crowds that would gather. You teach your profound truth. And then you just show me and what you did in my life. Let me... Be an example of your power. I'll give my testimony. We will knock this thing out of the park. Jesus says, well, you know, I did come to transform people's lives, but big auditoriums, large venues, that's not the way we're going to do it. He didn't let him go with him, but he did say, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. 
The guy literally begs Jesus to take him out of the Decapolis, and Jesus says, no, I want you to stay and explain what you have experienced with me. I want you to share the relationship that you have with me with your own people. Now, when you look at the New Testament, the English version of the New Testament says your own people. In the Greek New Testament, that is, go home to your oikos. Oikos. The 8 to 15 people God is supernaturally and strategically placed on the front burners of your lives. That's your oikos. That's what the Greeks called those people you share life with on a regular basis. Your oikos. And as disappointed as that guy must have been as he saw that boat row away without him in it, at some point he pulled himself up. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he said, that guy changed my life. The least I could do is what he asked of me. And so the man went away, verse 20, and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were what? Amazed. Now just stop for a minute and remember that when they met Jesus, they were afraid. And when they heard this man's story, they were amazed. That's kind of weird. You would think it'd be the other way around. Okay, put that story aside for a moment. We're going to keep moving in the sequence. One chapter later, Mark chapter 6, there's a miraculous feeding. 5,000 men and their families, we call it the feeding of the 5,000. Actually, it's the only recorded miracle of Jesus that is given to us or explained to us by all four gospel writers, the feeding of the 5,000. And then, a couple of chapters after that, in Mark chapter 8, there's another miraculous feeding, this time only 4,000 men and their families. I don't know why that falls off the table. Nobody ever talks about the feeding of the 4,000. I guess we're just so enamored by larger numbers, we all know about the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, you know where that happened? That happened on the right side of the lake. That happened on Israel's side of the lake. <laughs> feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, you know where that took place? That took place on the wrong side of the lake. That took place on the Decapolis side of the lake. In fact, in Mark 6, when they're on their home court, the disciples are the ones who initiate the conversation with Jesus about the people who are in attendance that day being hungry. They were worried about the people who were gathered to hear Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, you would expect that because they were their people. They were their friends, family. They were their group, the ones that they felt comfortable with. Let's take a break, Jesus. Let these hungry people go and find something to eat because they're hungry. But in Mark chapter 8, storyline is different. You don't see the compassion of the disciples on the other side of the lake. During those days, in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, another large crowd gathered. They had nothing to eat. So Jesus called his disciples together. Jesus said, I got compassion for these people. They've already been here three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse. Some of them come all the way from the high desert. They come a long distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this remote place, Jesus, can we find anybody who's got enough bread to feed them? See, in chapter 8, Jesus had to initiate the conversation about the poor people that hadn't eaten. The disciples thought they could fend for themselves. Even after Jesus brings it up, the disciples pushed back and said, oh, don't worry about them. It's funny how attitudes are. 
It's also interesting how consistent Jesus is throughout both stories. As far as Jesus was concerned, those people were his people too. Just like people on Israel's side, people on the other side were his people too. Jesus is saying to both sides of the lake, good news is here. God hasn't forgotten about the 12 tribes of Israel. I've come to save you, Israel. But I've got good news for the seven nations of Canaan because God hasn't forgotten about you either. For God so loved the world. I can take care of both sides. Came to save both sides. Doesn't matter. Twelve tribes, seven nations. I love them all. And, and here's something that's interesting. In Israel, where there were 12 tribes, 12 disciples, you know how many basketfuls were left over? 12. Go figure, right? And in the Decapolis, there were seven nations representing the ones whom the Jews believed were not deserving of salvation. And you know how many basketfuls were left over? Seven. Oh, and just one more thing. When Jesus went over to the Decapolis the first time, how many people were there to welcome him? One freak show. But when he went over to the Decapolis the second time, what happens? Well, we have to go to Gospel of Matthew, fill in the blanks here, Matthew chapter 15, verse 30. Jesus and the fellows come the second time, and it says, Great crowds came to him. Great crowds. <laughs> and, and they were bringing, look who they're bringing to Jesus. They're bringing the lame. They're bringing the blind. They're bringing the crippled. They're bringing the mute. And it just says many others, and everybody else they could think of. And they laid them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. And the people, verse 31, the people were, what? Amazed. The first time Jesus came, they were afraid. The second time Jesus comes, they're amazed. They were amazed when they saw the mute speaking. They were amazed when they saw their crippled friends made well. They were amazed when they saw their lame children walking. They were amazed when they saw the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Do not pass that. Do not just roll right over that without taking a step back and a deep breath and recognize here were people on the Decapolis now praising the God of Israel. I don't know how many sociologists would want to crack at this, try to figure out what happened. But I can tell you what happened. One guy happened. That's what happened. 
one guy who had a testimony of what the Lord had done for him and how the Lord had shown mercy to him. That's what happened. One guy who took the message of his relationship with Jesus to his oikos. That's what happened. You know, many of the people who live in Redlands, in Yukaipa, and Loma Linda, and beyond, are represented by these people who live on the other side. And it's not that they're all possessed of demons. It's not that they're all so horrible, so evil. It's just that so many of them are so lost. And if Jesus himself could talk to them, they wouldn't listen. Jesus would scare them. Not weird. See, I'm thinking, okay, I've got non-believing friends just like you do. And if Jesus were available, I think what I'd say is, why don't you come over for dinner? Cheryl will cook this great meal. She's a great cook. We'll get this wonderful spread, a little buffet style. We'll have a nice meal together, and then we'll just have Jesus talk to my non-believing friends directly. I mean, how, why not? I mean, if Jesus can't talk them into it, who can? And you know what Jesus would answer that question with? You can. Jesus says, they'll be afraid of me. They'll be amazed by what I've done for you. You know what that is? That's the oikos principle. That's what that is. Yesterday, as we were sharing with those who came out for the little seminar, little oikos principle seminar, we talked about how conversions to Jesus generally require at least one important conversation. At some point, the gospel has to be presented and the gospel has to be heard and received. So there's got to be one conversation. There might be many more, but there has to be at least one. But the corollary to the oikos principle says this. No meaningful conversation has ever taken place without at least two people's permission. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. Okay, you already know this principle. If somebody you're speaking to doesn't want to speak to you, we don't call that a conversation. We call that a monologue. Jesus knows that. Permission must be granted for meaningful conversations to evolve. And because he hardwired us for relationship, he also knows that that kind of permission is most likely granted by people we already know. People like our immediate family, our parents, our siblings, people like our neighbors, people like the ones we work with, our co-workers that we've come to know over the years, people like our classmates, the one whom we've gone through junior high and high school with, people like uh, friends that we have met in other contexts, other settings in the community. And the Greeks had a word for those 8 to 15 people that are on the front burner of your life right now, and the Greeks called that group Unoikos. And virtually everyone who has come into the family of God, probably you, most certainly me, have come into the family of God primarily because of the influence of someone they've already known pretty well who was on the front burner of their life, who either demonstrated faith or discussed faith, probably both, over a period of time. 
And for all believers from every generation, from every culture, from every Christian denomination, and like there are a ton of them, for the past 2,000 years of church history, dating all the way back to the founder of the Christian movement himself, and you know his name, Jesus. Over all of that time throughout the world, 95% of people who have come to faith in Jesus have come to faith in Jesus because of how God used someone in their Oikos network. 95% is a pretty impressive number. Let me ask you, if over the past 40 years, 95% of the most valuable players from every major sport, 95% of every MVP in every major professional sport, if they were born and raised in the city of Redlands, would anybody notice that? You better believe ESPN would be testing the water out here. What are you feeding these kids? Or if 95% of all cancer remission cases were patients of the same doctor, you think he'd have a hard time finding patients? Of course not. Or if 95% of all believers became believers through one ministry model, you think people might want to sit up and say, what does that look like? In fact, you know, when you, you might be thinking 95%, that's, that's a pretty big number. Statistically, it's an anomaly. You might be wondering where I get my research. I conduct my own research. And I'm going to conduct some research right now. How many of you would say, Trinity, that the reason you're sitting here today, the reason you're a child of God is primarily because of the influence that someone in your life has had in your life. Somebody who either demonstrated faith to you, lived an example of Christianity, or had conversations with you about the power of faith, the power of Jesus, the power of Christianity. You say, yeah, it was either my parents or it was my uh, sibling, brothers, sisters, a classmate, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. God used somebody to bring me into the kingdom of God, somebody who was in my Oikos network. Please raise your hand real high if you would say, yes, that's me. Okay, hold your hand up if it's up and look around the room. There you go. That's my research. You know, I've asked that same question of so many audiences around the world. In fact, it began decades ago when I asked the High Desert Church family, as small as it was at the time, that question, and I got the same answer. So I had a pastor who was a friend, and I said, can I come talk to your church? And I asked them the same question. And you know what? Wouldn't you know, I got the same answer. And now I have asked that question so many times on five continents, I don't know how many countries, being translated in different languages, meeting with groups with different ethnic makeup, different cultures, different denominational entities, different theological soapboxes, different, 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 different. I've never gotten a different answer than the one you just gave me. That's why Jesus modeled the strategy. That's why Jesus taught his strategy. That's why the Decapolis region was transformed with this strategy. <laughs> and that's why Jesus told that guy that day, you can't come with me. I've got a better idea. 
go home to your own people and tell them what I've done for you and I've had, how I've had mercy on you. Huh. What if Pastor Todd had gotten up this morning and said, yeah, Pastor Tom couldn't make it this morning. We, we wore him out yesterday, and so he's got nothing left. But I do have another guest speaker that I think might be better. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Jesus Christ. Guy comes walking out on the stage, and you've never seen him before, but you're thinking, that's Jesus Christ. And he asks you these questions. How many of you would say that I've done something for you? Raise your hand. Would you say Jesus had done something for you? Raise your hand. <laughs> See, you'd give Jesus a lot more respect than you give me, I'm sure. <laughs> and then Jesus were to ask you the question, how many of you have I shown mercy to? Raise your hand. Okay. What would Jesus tell you next? Go home to your oikos and make sure they know that. See, that's why after Zacchaeus gave his heart to Jesus, Jesus said, today salvation has come, not to this man. He didn't say that. Not to this punk, Zacchaeus. Not to this short, greedy, crook of a chief tax collector. He said, today salvation has come to this oikos. He healed the son of a politician. And it says in John chapter 4 that that guy and his whole oikos believed. When Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple says Jesus is having dinner with uh, Matthew, Levi, same guy, with Matthew's oikos. And there were many tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's oikos because Matthew is a Jewish tax collector. And if you're a Jew and you're collecting taxes for Rome, the only people in your oikos are other tax collectors and sinners. That's all you get. That's the choice you made. And there were many who followed Jesus. And when the angel told Cornelius that Peter would pay him a visit in Acts 11, he said, he's going to bring you a message, Cornelius, through which you and all of your oikos are going to be saved. And that's why the word oikos shows up over and over and over and over again in the New Testament in some form, not just the noun form, but as part of other compound Greek words. And the reason you see it so often is because if the people in your life are going to listen to anybody, there's a 95% chance it's going to be you. It's an amazing thought to me that if the Lord gave Trinity Church a thousand conversions to Christ this next year, a thousand, it's a lot of people, double the size of your church in a year. I don't know if that's going to happen. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe it should be more. Maybe I'm just too pastoral and I'm thinking too grandiose about what God's Spirit may do. Maybe it'll be a few less. But if it were a thousand, I pick a thousand because I can do the math on the fly. If it's a thousand, it's pretty amazing to think that 950 of them are going to come to faith and it'll have virtually nothing to do directly with what takes place on this stage. It'll have to do with how you decide you're going to demonstrate your faith and how you're going to discuss your faith with people in your relational world. See, the number one reason, I shared this yesterday, and I'll, I'll be done, I'm almost done. Uh, the number one reason why people say they don't share their faith in Jesus with others, number one reason, I don't have an outgoing personality. You know, Jesus knows that. 
And he knew most of us would say that. We just don't feel confident to be that outgoing and that bold. To compensate for your lack of outgoing personality, Jesus gave you an incoming strategy. He has already platformed you on a stage. And your audience today is 8 to 15 people. He supernaturally and strategically placed around you. It's time to go get them. And that's why this Oikos Challenge that we shared yesterday, Pastor Todd's very familiar with it. It's probably not the last you're going to hear about it. We write about it in the book. Step by step by step, five steps, to fully engage the personal mission that God has given you in your relational world. And our prayer for you is that you take him up. You take him up on this. Transform your Decapolis, I promise. And Father, I thank you. I thank you for my friends at Trinity. Most of them I've never met. Most of them I may never know. But I thank you that they love you. They've been transformed by you, that you've shown them mercy, that you've done wonderful work in their life, in their heart. And my prayer for them is that they would take your marching orders and begin to take seriously the personal, the personal mission to their own people, that challenge, that commission, that great commission that you've given each one of us, that we would take that and, and start to move forward in, a, uh, in just an, an amazing way. Let the world, let these communities be amazed, not afraid, but amazed when they see what you've done for us. In the great name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.